A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short term plans at uh1.com. Hello, everyone. Since our next episode will be about the Roman army in 1025, this seemed an ideal moment for today's Backer Rewards episode. Listener GGC asks. Regarding Greek fire, why was it not used on land? If I had a wonder weapon, I would get my smartest people in research and development to improve it further. Imagine how it could have led to a reconquest of former Roman lands. It also seems to have been used sparingly in many naval engagements. Was the technology ever stolen or copied by the Byzantines' neighbours? Ah, Greek fire. It's a question many have asked. If you had superior technology, why wouldn't you use it in every battle? To help me answer this, I'd like to play an audio clip. It's from Game of Thrones, and there is some choice language on show, so please cover your children's ears. The first voice you hear, an old man, is a pyromancer, the man responsible for making the equivalent of Greek fire in Westeros. The second voice is an experienced soldier describing the dangers of handling such a substance. The third is the man making the decision of whether to use fire in the defence of his city. The substance is far given form, and we have been perfecting it since the days of Mago. To do what? The jars are put in catapult and flung at the enemy. How much do you have? If you could get real soldiers to mine the catapults, then maybe you'd hit your target one time in ten. But all the real soldiers are in the Riverlands with your father. I know this man is insulting. I don't know if have seen a battle, old man, but things can get a bit messy. Because when we're flinging things at Stannis, he's flinging them right back at us. Men die. Men shit themselves. Men run. Which means pots falling. Which means fire inside the walls. Which means the poor cons managed to thin the city and are burning it down. My friend remains unconvinced. He would not dare insult my order whilst Aerys Targaryen lived. Well, he's not living anymore. And all his pots of wildfire didn't help him, did they? Men win wars, not magic tricks. Now that was just a more colourful way of saying the obvious. Fire is dangerous. In any battle situation, when all is chaos... Do you really want a weapon around that can harm you as much as the enemy? It's the same logic that meant elephants were not the tanks of the ancient world that you might think they could be. They were just as capable of trampling your army as that of the enemy. So any Byzantine general contemplating the use of fire had to be in a situation where they could control its use carefully. 
as you may recall from episode 69, when we introduced Greek fire. Its use on ships involved quite a complicated procedure. Uh, Oil had to be heated in a cauldron, brought to a very high temperature, pumped along a tube, and then passed through a lit taper. It then produced such a hot burst of flame that the men operating it couldn't stand too close by. Now that's quite a delicate operation for men standing on a moving boat. Uh, Remember also that the range of the flame only went up to about 20 feet. So if you approached an enemy ship, you would have to get right up close to them to do any damage. Uh, coming well within range, obviously, of their arrows and other projectiles. But let's say you managed to get right next to them, and you didn't get shot to pieces, and you were able to make the fire without spilling anything, and you hit them, and the flames have set fire to their ship. All good, brilliant. Now, how's the wind? And which way are the tides going? Uh, I just thought I'd check because you just set the sea on fire. Or rather, you just sent a burst of flaming oil to lie on top of the waves. If they come in your direction, you will soon be destroyed. As I outlined back in episode 69, Greek fire being shot from a ship was only really useful in the defense of a place like Constantinople. Surrounded by water, thus demanding a naval siege, the defenders could wait inside the city until the wind, tide and moonlight were all in their favour and then set out only a short distance to burn the besiegers. Under almost any other circumstance, the weapon was too dangerous or too limited to use. Imagine heading out to the middle of the Mediterranean with a cauldron of hot oil on board and engaging in a full-pitched naval battle with big waves and ships banging into each other. Uh, You'd be mad to attempt it. So that's why we rarely hear of its use in other naval engagements and why we don't hear of, say, the Caliphate adopting it even though they could clearly have developed something similar. In spite of all those limitations, several Byzantine military handbooks do recommend taking liquid fire on campaign with the land armies. Both Leo VI and Nicephorus Phocas include this in their texts about how to prepare to besiege enemy towns. Now, a cauldron of oil being carefully stoked and then pumped would be far too cumbersome and vulnerable outside the walls of an opposing town. So what was being imagined here? The words the Byzantines use are either siphons or siphones or strepta. And what this seems to mean is a handheld flamethrower, a single piston syringe attached to a container of the same crude oil used at sea. A pump of the syringe and a jet of liquid would be squirted out, presumably again with a burning taper on the lip of the syringe, which could ignite it and produce a jet of deadly fire. 
Uh, on the website, I've put up a contemporary illustration of a soldier holding one, as well as a clip from a modern documentary where one was recreated. The illustration shows a man operating his flamethrower on a siege tower, which would in theory be an effective way to clear the defenders from the parapet of a castle. But again, we have to question if this was ever very practical. A siege tower was about as chaotic a spot as could be imagined, rocking from side to side, crammed with men and coming under constant fire. I mean, do you want to stand next to the guy carrying the syringe full of fire? And remember, too, that the range of this fire would be pretty small, um, so you'd need to get right up to the walls to have any effect on the defenders. In the military manuals of the day, the Byzantines rarely discuss using siege towers anyway. Their preferred method of assault was to tunnel under the wall and bring it down that way. As with the sea, it seems more likely that fire was used in a defensive capacity. As a defence against a siege tower, it would be ideal. In Leo VI's Tactica, he suggests that the man operating the device should be behind an iron shield for his own protection, again indicating a fixed defensive position would be the ideal scenario for its use. The situation where fire could be a decisive weapon, particularly in a siege, is if the defenders could burn the enemy's siege engines. If successful, this could break the morale of an attacking force. But Greek or liquid fire was not much use in this situation because you can't fire it over that sort of distance. In theory, you could throw it Various sources describe pots full of liquid being launched at the enemy. But if this did happen, the odds of success were considerably reduced, partly through issues of accuracy, and partly because of the potential for the liquid fire to be extinguished en route by the violent motion. We know that pots of oil or pitch were used by plenty of nations during siege warfare, but that's not the same as liquid or Greek fire. I can give you an example from the sources which illustrates the problem um, that faces us. Let me take you forward to 1054. The Turkish Sultan is besieging the Roman outpost of Manzikert. Now this is 20 years before that Manzikert but the Lake Van Fortress had already become a key node in the defence of Armenia against Turkish raiders. Anyway, the Sultan is pounding the walls with a huge catapult that is well protected from any Roman projectiles. So the Byzantine commander offers rich rewards to anyone willing to go out and sabotage the device. A Western soldier serving there agrees to take on the challenge. They dress him up like an official messenger and attach a letter to the tip of his spear. So as he rides carefully towards the Turkish camp, they assume he's bringing an offer of surrender. They are therefore too slow to react when he instead darts for the catapult. 
From inside his coat, he produces three pots filled with incendiary liquid. He circles the catapult, tossing the pots on it, one after the other, and it catches fire, and he returns safely to the wars. The catapult is destroyed, and the Turks eventually leave empty-handed. It's a nice story, and fits with our sense of fire being a primarily defensive weapon. But how exactly did the rider ignite his bombs? Did he carry three pots full of burning material inside his coat? Maybe, but that was an extremely risky venture, and quite how he kept them close enough to his skin to be concealed, but not close enough to burn him, is a bit of a mystery. Or did he stop in front of approaching Turkish soldiers and get out a piece of flint and start hacking at it to create a spark? Uh, Obviously not. The story may be fictional, but it may be true. We are missing vital details about how ignition was achieved. Normally, we imagine a pot's content was lit on fire and then quickly hurled at the enemy. The Byzantines certainly employed these tactics. And not just with flammable substances, they also threw pots full of quicklime which exploded and spread a thick smoke which temporarily smothered and blinded enemy troops. The final part of GGC's question was whether the technology was ever stolen or copied by Byzantium's neighbours. It's worth bearing in mind that the story of its creation by Callinicus in the 7th or 8th century is dubious. When historian John Halden attempted to recreate the process, he used designs for a piston that had been drawn up centuries before Constantinople was even founded. Fire weapons have a long history, and even in Byzantium we hear of them before 717. During Vitalian's revolt against Anastasius, we read descriptions of some kind of fire ship being deployed to burn the rebel fleet. While before that, during Leo I's failed campaign against the Vandals, some kind of tube of fire was deployed. We are told that these tubes often exploded in the hands of those using them, a nice illustration of why these projects were only of limited value. An Arab source also claims that the Caliph Harun al-Rashid used crude oil weapons against the Romans. We are told that he fired it from catapults during a siege of a Roman fort in Cilicia. Then later, as he marched through Anatolia, the Byzantines blocked his path by filling the road with debris and setting fire to it. The caliph sent men in with flame-resistant armour to clear a path. So, it seems any state as sophisticated as Byzantium could produce their own fire weaponry if they needed it. Fire could be devastating. Everyone knew that. But its use as a decisive weapon was pretty limited. This shouldn't surprise us. The machine gun, the tank, the aeroplane, the nuclear bomb, all were touted as war-changing weapons. But humans adapt quickly, and once the other side have mastered the same skill, the value of the new technology 
as a game changer, diminishes. While we're on this topic, I'll also tackle listener KU's end-of-the-century question, which was what kind of warships did the Byzantines use in 1025? The answer is the Thromon, or Dromon, as you'll read it, the standard version of which was a fully decked bireem with two superimposed banks of oars. One set of rowers worked from beneath deck, the other above it, both sets fully seated. So about a hundred oarsmen would propel the ship, which could then comfortably carry about another 50 people, marines and officers and so on. It had two sails, was about 31 metres in length, and weighed about 25 metric tonnes. I've put up a diagram on the website. Smaller, quicker thromons might have only one bank of oars. I'm told that by about 1200, galleys from Western Europe were slightly bigger and quicker, with room for oarsmen to both sit and stand, which was a more effective method. That's it for today. Next week we examine wider issues surrounding the army of 1025, and I also recently recorded an interview with the Dead Ideas podcast about the Varangian Guard, which should be out soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.